In spite of the fact that I find myself spending an eternity seeking out the worst TV shows, moments, and characters of all time, I'm still grateful that at least I have something to do that can occupy my time. Such is the case when billions of others worldwide find gainful employment elsewhere. But then there are times when people who work realize that they're much better than the position that they currently find themselves in. And when that moment takes place, you can do one of two things. You can either frankly and earnestly let your superiors know what kind of work you've been doing over time in the hopes that they take note of what you do and then advance you based on your merits. Or you could melt down in the hopes of gaining a little sympathy before they ultimately come at you with a straitjacket and escort you out of the building. We're not saying that this has happened to any of the following people that we're about to talk about, but who's to say what really happened after the cameras stopped rolling? And now, hold on to your fireproof shoes. This is Telehell. Okay, bear with us here, because unlike our other lists, this one is going to be just a little bit more detailed in our criteria. We're going to mention the stories of each entry like we normally do, but in this case... We're not only going to go over the mistakes that a famous person made in their TV career, but we're also going to score based on the following factors. Number one, whether or not a star's departure from a given TV series had any effect on the series both in the short or long term or the remainder of the show's run. And two, whether or not that person's departure had a significant impact on their career after leaving the show in question. The overall judgment of these entries are going to be based on the notoriety of the departure and whether the careers of those who thought they were too good for their jobs could ever hit those heights ever again. We want to mention this specifically because some of the people on this list did make a comeback of sorts, or they might still actively have careers as we speak. All we're doing here is stating what happened as a matter of historical record. Nothing more. Because you make a mistake in one episode earlier this season and suddenly you have to throw in more disclaimers than a pharmaceutical ad. But I digress. And just so we fulfill our nine circle requirements for the week, the people who made these decisions did so with the knowledge that they may have put their careers in limbo because of the choices they made. The choices being made because they felt they wanted more out of their careers than what they already had, so a certain amount of gluttony. Chances are more than likely that money may be involved in all of these cases, but to varying degrees on each one, so a sense of greed will be involved here. And in the case of some people, they may have quit in a huff over being given questionable work to do, so there's also a chance of some misguided wrath in their decisions. And finally, the departures of some of these performers may have also resulted in major upheavals of otherwise smooth-running productions. Not unlike whenever a car part goes missing and the car fails to run, the loss of a major star might have resulted in accidental or intentional treachery behind the scenes. And finally, the ongoing reminder that this and any other list that we do on this show is never set in stone, and that the selections here are highly subjective. We can't stress that enough. If there's a name that we missed, it's either purely accidental or because some entries have had larger impacts than others. At the end of the day, you are more than welcome to either disagree with my selections, where they stand on the list, or if I left off an even more deserving candidate by mistake. If so, you know where to reach us on our socials at Podcast or our complaint line at telehealthpodcast at gmail.com. And even I know we can always do a volume two down the line because... I know we're going to leave off some more worthy names. These are just the ones that came to the top of my head first. So, with all of that in mind, let's stand on the unemployment line and take a look at the top seven bad career moves of TV stars. How sweet to be an idiot As harmless as a cloud Number seven. Too small to hide the sun. Almost poking fun. We begin by getting something out of the way. Primarily because we already did an episode two years ago about this guy and his ill-fated decision. So, if you'll indulge me, here's a clip from that show. <laughs> 
Johnson moved on to NBC and to other projects under the notion that his star would continue to rise. He thought that not just with his guest hosting appearances on The Tonight Show, but with his own eponymous sitcom, The McLean Stevenson Show. Hello, Mac, you're living on love. It's a way in life. Got a little boy grin. Are you going to be our best friend? Which lasted four months. Then he came back to CBS, giving them another try in 1978 with In the Beginning, where Stevenson played a priest. In the beginning, the beginning we were not very It lasted five episodes. Then, just as all seemed hopeless, Stevenson thought he scored a comparably minor hit when he went back to NBC with a cult classic, Hello Larry. Well, hello Larry. Despite some of the moments it had, and lasting longer than all the other shows he did post-MASH, that one was not only gone after a year and a half, but it also wound up as number 12 on TV Guide's list of the 50 worst TV shows of all time. Fortunately, thanks to what little momentum Stevenson gained from Hello Larry, he was able to muster up enough oomph to play the sitcom game one more time. Meet the Kirkridges. They're looking for a place to live, and look what they found. I am not the gardener. Well, who are you? I am Mr. Rodriguez, and I am your neighbor. Oh. Condo opens tomorrow night. And really, that's all that needs to be said about him. Well, aside from this, did it affect the show? Well, MASH kept on moving forward after his departure, about eight years forward until ultimately signing off in 1983 with what is still the highest ever TV rating for an episodic TV program. Did it affect the career? At the risk of beating a dead horse, McLean Stevenson is probably one of the first examples of quitting a show at the top of both the actor's game and the series, and backfiring. But because he was one of the first whose departure backfired, his departure was really more of a prototype of what was to come for others. Which is also why we're placing him as low as we are on this list. Because as the old saying goes, quote, The first time was a mistake, the second time was a choice, and the third time becomes a habit, end quote. The rest of the people on this list arguably are the bearers of that habit. Meanwhile, four failed sitcoms, including one that we covered back in episode 25, plus a string of guest roles and game show appearances, all that makes this selection the lowest of low-hanging fruit. The only saving graces I could possibly give Stevenson is the fact that he not only ultimately owned up to the fact that leaving MASH was the biggest mistake of his life, but from what I've read about the story over the years, the departure from MASH was still on relatively mutual terms, unlike others down the line who might have done things with a little more notoriety. Everything else we need to say about him you can already hear in the rest of episode 25, the condo episode. So... Let's move on. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in depth. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company. Number six. This next entry comes with a caveat. The fact that sometimes there are happy endings, sometimes there are tragic endings, and sometimes things just end. Or, as Marge Simpson once said, It's an ending, that's enough! With that in mind, it almost seems unthinkable in this day and age, but there was once a time when, if a person left a popular TV series, the occasion was marked with very little fanfare, and everybody simply minded their own business about it. That being said, unlike some of our entries on this list, where they seem to have pulled themselves up from a potential career tailspin, this guy seems to have all but disappeared from the flight radar altogether. Seemingly... On purpose. Evidently suffering from a huge glut of storage space, the Richard Nixon Library has opened an exhibition called Dearest Partner, Husbands and Wives in the White House, featuring love letters and other gooey memorabilia from 30 presidents and first ladies. Many presidents had pet names for their wives. John Adams called Abigail Miss Adorable. Teddy Roosevelt called Alice My Sweetest Little Wife. And Franklin Roosevelt called Eleanor Bruno. I always thought of Craig Kilborn as the D.B. Cooper of show business. He got in, he got away with a lot, and then he more or less disappeared without leaving a trace, all while presumably living his best life. 
For those who don't remember, the Midwest-born personality got his start doing sports and other kinds of news reports on a station in Salinas, California. Through a series of events, his talents were soon being noticed by ESPN, who then hired Kilborn to become the overnight anchor of SportsCenter. His snarky, sarcastic, almost devil-may-care attitude on that show proved to be enough to get the attention of an up-and-coming cable network called Comedy Central, where in 1996, a new nightly program would emerge that attempted to put a humorous spin on the news of the day. The name of that program? The Daily Show. Important news, stories, interviews. It's important to us to cover the important stories. What would you like to say to the aliens? Lighten up! Can I speak to you about your urine? Mike, is the soap free? It seems hard to believe now, but there was once a time when The Daily Show wasn't hosted by Jon Stewart or Trevor Noah. Even more so, there was also a time when people didn't take a comedy show as seriously as a news program. The two years where Kilborn was the show's main anchor pretty much telegraphed just how much of a parody the show was meant to be at first. One of FDR's letters reveals the man's great sensitivity toward his wife. Dear wife, please pay no attention to the rude comments my family and friends continually make about your appearance. Honey, you are the most splendid beauty I've ever laid eyes on. If I'm lying, may God give me polio and make me president during a horrible depression. After a few more years of snark, the Peter Principle kicked in when Kilborn was hired away by CBS to replace Tom Snyder on its then-fledgling Late Late Show. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. I'll have guests like Janine, alternative and independent. And like Vince, he is tall. So am I, but he's a movie star. Loved him in Jurassic Park, The Lost World. All seemed to be going well for Kilborn, and at the rate he kept on escalating from one network to the next, it seemed like a real possibility that he could eventually be at the helm of a show at 11.30 p.m. But then, one day... It just stopped. Three years in Monterey, the local market in Monterey, the 110 market, then ESPN, then Comedy Central. All three years, longest job I've ever had, five years here. My job is done here, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's time for me to move on. I dreamed of early retirement. That's probably what I got. Yeah. This is probably one of the rarest of rare cases. One where a person quit at the top of their game, and the quitter couldn't care less if he did come back. Did it affect the show? In the case of both shows, it took time for them to improve a great deal once Kilborn left. The Daily Show's turnaround is the stuff that you read about in tell-all books, such as The Daily Show, The Book, available at Amazon or, more likely, at used bookstores worldwide. The Late Late Show's turnaround, though not as dramatic, is still pretty measurable thanks to 10 years of Craig Ferguson hosting it and James Corden, whether you love him or hate him, turning the show into a viral video breeding ground. Neither of these shows seem to want to acknowledge Kilborn's existence, save for a blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameo in Jon Stewart's last episode in 2015. But for the most part, both shows seem to be doing fine on their own. Did it affect the career? This one is highly debatable because even though Kilborn hasn't really done anything of major significance since leaving CBS, save for a short-lived summer replacement talk show on Fox affiliates in 2009, the rare appearance on interview shows with former ESPN colleagues, and the even rarer bits of appearances on TV shows and movies, in the few interviews he's given over the years, he seems to be perfectly content with staying out of the spotlight altogether. In Kilborn's own words, according to interviews with the Los Angeles Times and the Philadelphia Inquirer, quote, I didn't leave to do anything else. I left to leave. I achieved my career goals, and it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. The main reason why I left the Late Late Show was, creatively, I lost interest in late-night comedy. The other reason was that the business side of that particular show was excessively flawed, so I escaped the silliness, end quote. More power to him if that's the case. But if he's truly happy not being in the spotlight and feeling that he set out to do everything that he wanted to do, this may wind up being the sole exception to the rule as to just how bad the career move turned out to be, which is also why we have him low on the list. 
because out of all the departures to come, this one might be the least noteworthy of all of them, even though it's still quitting your job at the top of your game. Still, though, old Kragers sounds like he's still got a few years left in him, so hopefully he can come out of hiding long enough to take on a second act and... Maybe for old time's sake. All I want to do is dance, dance, dance. Number five. Most of these entries involve people whose careers wound up with a primarily downward trajectory after making their fateful move. But in the case of the next entry and a few others further down, we feel the need to remind you that even though they made their mistakes, they still managed to save face afterwards, albeit with some variations to each story. That being said... Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name. The story of Cheers and how it slowly but surely became one of the most beloved TV shows of all time is a densely layered one. So much so that when you're done listening to this, I want to refer you to a YouTube page simply known as Jose, where they have a nearly two-hour retrospective dedicated to the show. To trim it down a little, most of the show's early success can be attributed to the will-they-or-won't-they sexual tension between Ted Danson, Sam Malone, and this lady. I was uh, I was looking at you at that interview today. Yep. I didn't see a, a washed-up ex-former husband. No. I saw a guy who has a great deal to look back on with pride and a great deal to look forward to with hope. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Of course, it didn't hurt that you were standing next to a crow magnet. <laughs> For five seasons... Shelley Long played Diane Chambers, the pseudo-intellectual yin to Sam's testosterone-fueled yang. And despite the slow start that the show got in 1982, over time, the relationship was all people ever talked about whenever the subject of Cheers was brought up. The other characters pretty much took a back seat, even though it was still very much an ensemble show. Or at least that was the case until 1987, the end of the show's fifth season, and also the end of Shelley Long's run on the show to pursue more more movies, or as Long herself said in an interview with Phil Donahue that year, I knew that I had a five-year contract, and uh, as did everyone else, and so the discussion of what was going to happen following that five-year contract had come up around the fourth year, I think, and Ted, I believe it was the fourth year, or prior to the fourth year, that he extended his five-year contract yeah. to six, so that discussion was ongoing, and I pretty much indicated that I was ready to devote more time to my family and I already had my contract with Disney by that point so although I hadn't given them a final decision I'd indicated where I was going so they wouldn't be left without some sense yeah. of where they were going. Once the die was cast, Long left the show in probably one of the more bittersweet send-offs that a TV character would have. Hey, have a good life. Have a good life? What? Well that's something you say when something's over. Sam. I'm going away for six months. That's all. So no more of this have a good life stuff. You never know. You, you could die. I could die. The world could end. One of us could bump our heads and uh, wander the streets for the rest of our life with amnesia. Or maybe one of us will decide they want something else. None of those things will happen. I'll be back here. I will. I'll see you in six months. It's better. Have a good life. Did it affect the show? At first, it was pretty up in the air as to whether or not Cheers could continue after Long left, especially with a seemingly drastic change in the show's tone overall. But continue it did, not just with the addition of new characters and cast members, but also with its slow and steady evolution from a show taking place at a bar to a show whose characters we now see in their lives outside the bar. Although Long's departure may not have anything to do with that, it kind of seems a little more than coincidental. The show did run for another six seasons, and it even started racking up more Emmys under its belt, including several for Best Comedy Series. The departure from the show wasn't a bitter one, though, because it couldn't have been in order for Shelley to appear in the series finale in 1993. Did it affect the career? It seems as though she's perfectly content with the way things turned out, even if she never wound up doing something as popular as Cheers ever again. 
Sure, she was still doing movies and doing guest roles on a number of sitcoms, and most notably in recent years, a recurring role on Modern Family as Al Bundy's ex-wife. And yes, I know that's a different show, but Ed O'Neill will never not be Al Bundy to me, no matter who he plays. And then it got weird. Nana is really strong. To say nothing of the fact that she not once, not twice, but three times wound up filling the role of a certain sitcom character who I won't be mentioning here. Because if I do, I have the sinking feeling that I'll be obligated to cover that subject again sometime in the future. And that's all I'm going to say about it. That's why we'll always have our home as long as we have our family. Even if we lose our house, we're still Brady's. Your father's right. Hey, 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 no clips. No clips. We're dropping the subject, okay? You were lost at sea so many years ago, I thought you were... Dead, stiff, rotting, gone to that great archaeological dig in the sky. I'm not going to mention it. Meatless burgers? Soy bars? Tofu? A grocery bag mix up? No, 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 no. We are not going to talk about the Brady Bunch movies. Damn it! Anyway, every once in a while, interviewers ask Long if leaving Cheers was ever a mistake in her eyes. Perhaps the most definitive response to that question came in a 2003 interview with Graham Norton, where she stated in part, quote, I didn't want to keep doing the same episode over and over again and the same story. I didn't want it to become old and stale. She went on to say, Working at Cheers was a dream come true. It was one of the most satisfying experiences of my life. So, yes, I missed it, but I never regretted that decision. End quote. To say nothing of the even more personal reason why she stepped away from the show, she had a two-year-old girl at the time. Sometimes being a parent is far more important than being on camera, and sometimes you have to make sacrifices in order to find happiness. You have to put the past behind you. You have to turn and face the future. Look at it. You have to open your eyes, see what's right in front of you. Go for it, Sam. I tell you, go for it. Are you okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm... Uh, one of my lights is out. <laughs> Number four. Okay, not gonna lie, the only reason why I'm including this next one is because of this sketch from a 1984 episode of SNL where Billy Crystal, of all people, portrayed the person that we're about to talk about. And while his portrayal of someone of a completely different ethnicity is a debate for another place in time, it doesn't change the fact that this career move is still worth talking about. You gotta be enough to quit Fantasy Island. I mean, what, whatever possessed you. So in the end, uh, credit, it, it came down like it does in this business very often, uh, to money. I wanted to be paid, but I felt an actor of my status should be paid. Well, yeah, well, how much was that? $75,000 a week. <laughs> what? <laughs> you lunatic Tom Selleck only gets 50 grand a week. So, I felt that's what I was worth, and I, and I quit. So, I mean, that's ridiculous. That's, that's $25,000 a foot. <laughs> While the exact details in the SNL sketch are debatable, it is true that Hervé Villachez did leave Fantasy Island in 1983 because he wanted to be paid on the same level as his co-star, the most charming part of the 1974 Wonder Woman TV movie, Ricardo Montalban. Oh, come on! I wasn't even referencing that! Anyway... In addition, Villachez was rumored to have had a temper on the set of the show, sometimes getting into fights with the show's producers, to say nothing of the, can't stress this enough, alleged sexual harassment that he would impose on women who appeared on the show as guest stars. But since those are, to me anyway, just rumors, we're not going to go any further on that. For all intents and purposes, the request for the salary hike was what ultimately gave Villachez the axe. Did it affect the show? 
In a sense, it did, because shortly after he left the show, somebody had to replace Tattoo, which, for the Fantasy Island producers, was probably going to be a hard task to accomplish because, let's face it, a character like Tattoo was irreplaceable. Still, though, the show must go on. And in the 1983 season, Villachez was replaced by a character named Lawrence, who all but automated Tattoo's bell-ringing role and totally eliminated the catchphrase of... Lawrence was more of a butler type than an assistant, but still did what he could to facilitate the work of Tattoo. And incidentally enough, he would be played by somebody who, just a few years later, would remain a butler in probably his best-known role. Streaks on the China never mattered before. Who cared? Yep, Christopher Hewitt, who, even though he had been known for many other roles throughout his career, will forever be known as Mr. Belvedere, possibly because he had a year's practice playing Ricardo Montalban's version of him. Unfortunately, the change in casting proved to be a little too jarring for viewers, and Fantasy Island was cancelled in 1984. Though, to be fair, ratings were already on the downswing while Villachez was still on the show, so in this case, let's call it a draw. Did it affect the career? While Villachez still managed to find work in various commercials and guest appearances through the 80s and part of the 1990s, unfortunately, this story has a sad ending. Due to a number of other factors in his life, up to and including a series of medical issues and an ongoing fight with depression stemming from the pain of said medical issues, Hervé Villachez would take his own life in September of 1993. His life and his legacy, fractured as it may have been, still remains a fascinating story. So much so that if anybody out there has HBO Max or just access to anything streaming altogether, we strongly recommend looking at the 2018 TV movie My Dinner with Hervé, starring Peter Dinklage as Hervé Villachez. It's a more than fitting coda for someone whose life and career ended too soon. What is this incredible story of yours then? You're all right, though. Ask me a question. Tell me what it felt like to be famous. To have made it. The plan, the plan. Being famous is like being drunk, except the whole world is drunk with you. On that note, I think we need a bit of a palate cleanser after something that depressing. Especially since the remaining three entries on the list may go down in history as some of the most notorious departures from TV shows. So, let's regroup ourselves as we continue to pick apart people with actual careers after the break. This week on Telehell's premium content of the dam. The world looks mighty good to me. Cause rolls are all I see. Whatever it is I think I see. Becomes a Tootsie Roll to me. Tootsie Roll, how I want your chocolate eat chew. Tootsie Roll, I think I'm in love with you. Whatever it is I think I see. Becomes a Tootsie Roll to me. The 
only way to listen to Telehealth's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast. For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. And now, back to this week's torture. Number three. At the beginning of this list... We mentioned McLean Stevenson as one of the first major high-profile cases of a person leaving a TV show with a lot of fanfare behind him. We should probably nip this in the bud right now, though, that he was not the first person ever to do that. People have left TV shows before with seemingly little fanfare, and both their careers and the shows that they quit both wound up managing to live peaceful lives. Take, for instance, the late grade... Don Knotts. I say this calls for action, and now, nip it in the bud. For five seasons, his portrayal of Deputy Sheriff Barney Fife was arguably the biggest part of the Andy Griffith show that gave Mayberry a sense of humor, all while complimenting Griffith's down-home demeanor. As is the case with many on this list, Knotts left the show in 1965 to pursue a movie career. But unlike some entries, he also managed to leave the door open for return appearances and guest roles for the remainder of the series. Now that, to me, is an example of a peaceful departure. Make the intention known, don't rock the boat, but at the same time, leave the door open. Advice that, in retrospect, he probably should have told the co-star of the next TV show that he found himself in. Come and knock on our door. Come and knock on our door. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. This list would not be complete without mentioning probably one of the more notorious times when a person decided to leave a TV show. For its first few seasons on the air, Three's company was appointment viewing on a number of fronts. People either tuned in to see what kind of trouble that Jack Tripper would get into, or, let's not mince words, they may have tuned in to see a different kind of front, and possibly back, as the show was considered one of the flag bearers of the so-called Jigglevision movement that was taking over TV screens in the late 70s. A gambit that paid off big for ABC because they wound up becoming the number one network for the first time around that time. But aside from physical comedy and not-so-subtle TNA, some have argued that the other main drawing power that the show had was when Suzanne Somers' Chrissy Snow would play up the notion that blondes can, sometimes, be a little wild-eyed and ditzy. Even though there was that kind of conceit that would be considered stereotypical to this day, audiences ate it up anyway whenever Chrissy was on the screen. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing a girl likes more than a little tickle on the tummy. <laughs> The show continued to ride high for its first four seasons on the air, during three of which the show would hold the title of TV's number one comedy program, and two seasons where it was the number two program overall. So it came as no surprise when, by the time season five of the show began production, the stars of the show started asking for a little more. But in the case of Summers, she may have asked for a little too much. And from this moment forward, I'm going to let her do the talking since she's the one that went through it. And I want to be sure that I don't miss a detail. So, here now from an interview with the Television Academy, Suzanne Summers on what went wrong with the power play. So, they sit down and my husband says, as you know, she has the highest demographics of all women in television in the desired ages of 18 to 49. And she's been on... You know, hundreds of, of magazine covers, and she brought so much publicity to the show. So, she would like to um, be paid, which the the men are averaging on television, which is 150 thousand a week, uh, and a piece of the back end. And Mickey Ross, <laughs> Mickey Ross is in the chair, and he's smoking. And when Alan finishes, he throws his cigarettes out, stomps it out with his feet. Leans over to my husband. He said, you want me to share my blood with her? 
And my husband stood up nose to nose and said, yes. And at that moment, my career was over. (laughs) Which brings us to the reason why this case ranks a little higher on the list than some of the others. The mere fact that thanks to a number of key placements in national magazines, including the cover of Newsweek, Summers pretty much became the face of the show, even though it was still largely an ensemble program. And as she just mentioned in the clip, perhaps there was a false equivalency involved when, because of all that extra exposure, she felt obligated to grab a bigger piece, only for it to backfire spectacularly. Did it affect the show? In this particular case, it's sort of a mixed bag. By the time she left Three's company in 1981 and the part of the third person in the group was recast not once, but twice, the show was still popular enough for it to remain the number one comedy in prime time and also remain in the top ten overall until 1983, when the show limped its way to the finish line for one more season. And while there were fans out there that tuned in just to see Chrissy, her departure didn't really put a dent in the fender. Truth be told, I think people were starting to watch a little more for John Ritter's physical comedy than just the eye candy. But then again, I wasn't born yet when the show first aired, so who am I to say? By that point, however, there were only three seasons left to go before Three's Company became Three's a Crowd in 1984. Did it affect the career? Summers did eventually bounce back, but decided to play it safe and stick to television. After a few years in exile and also performing in Vegas stage shows, Summers' first major TV comeback was in 1987, when she became the star of a show called She's the Sheriff. There's a lot of crime out there, and somebody's got to fight it. Hello, Sheriff Ranger speaking. Somebody's got to take charge. And be forceful. Dennis, Dennis, kiss me. Somebody's got to show them crime doesn't pay. We are cops. And she's got to use every trick in the book. A show that, for some reason, people are almost too quick to pounce on and proclaim it to be one of the all-time worst. Personally, I think it's mediocre at best, so nothing that we'd ever have to worry about around here. The show lasted two seasons in syndication, but it wasn't the end of the line for Summers. She continued to recover her career in a number of guest roles, more Vegas stage shows, and even become one of the key figures of infomercials in the 90s by showing off her mastered thighs. Every single time you squeeze thigh master, you strengthen and tone right where you need it. So it's easy to squeeze, squeeze your way to shape the hips and thighs. But it wouldn't be until 1991, when Summers found her comfort zone once again, this time becoming the stepmother in a step family for seven seasons on the aptly named Step by Step. To this day, Summers is pretty much relegated to the infotainment circuit, whether it be 30-minute commercials on TV itself or the occasional YouTube video where she continues to write self-help books, hawk her own product lines, and even on one occasion bury the hatchet with one of her Three's Company co-stars, Suzanne Summers ultimately learned her lesson about biting the hand that feeds you. And I guess we could attribute the whole experience to being young and innocent at the time. And as she continued to say in the TV Academy interview, why not make lemons out of lemonade? I hear a voice in my head, like, like a loudspeaker. It says, why are you focused on what you don't have? Why don't you focus on what it is you do have? I sat back and thought, what do I have? I have nothing. What do I have? Visibility. Wow. Everybody in this country knows my name. I have visibility. That's something. Most people don't, will never get that. What can I do with that? And that's when I sent Alan in out to Vegas and went in. And five years later, I walked up on a stage along with Frank Sinatra. He was the male entertainer of the year, and I was the female entertainer of the year. So, life, the reinvention began. Number two. I'm just going to get right to the point on this next one.
I wish that NYPD Blue wound up with the same level of reverence and fervent fan base that the Law & Order franchise has today. Because back in its day, the show knocked down a number of barriers for the ABC network and for broadcast television in general. I'll be brief when I say that there were not-so-subtle reasons why the show had blue in its title. Every time my lie detector goes beep, beep, you're going to get smacked. What did you do when you went outside? I went to work. Beep, beep! I went to work! Beep, beep! I don't know! I, 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 I took the garbage. Beep, beep. Just garbage. Beep, beep. Sure, by 1993, cop shows were pretty much a dime a dozen. But NYPD Blue added a lot more grit and realism to the mix. Sometimes a little too real. Are you going to tell me what I want to know, or am I going to have to show you my ass? I ain't saying nothing. All right, it was Jimmy the Hat. But that didn't matter. People tuned in, and the show wound up racking one Emmy after another, because in comparison to everything else on TV at the time, this broke the mold. And a lot of credit for that mold-breaking could be attributed to those who inhabited the 15th Precinct, whose human drama were often more compelling than the police drama. And while the show did see its fair share of people coming and going over its 12-season run, somebody had to do it first for some reason. Lieutenant, I know Seth was messing up. But he's going to come out of it. Let me talk to him. Let me see if I can shake him up. In season one of the show, David Caruso, who by 1993 was already a well-established actor, played the role of Detective John Kelly. Caruso was just one of many people who called NYPD Blue their home during that first season. Also happening during that first season, Caruso winning a Golden Globe for his performance. With the show ranking at number 18 for its first season, and also building up some buzz elsewhere, Caruso thought the same thing that many others have felt whenever they felt the wind was at their backs. Give us some money! Long story short, Caruso got greedy. And after the show's producers refused to give him a raise, not to mention alleged rumors of him being hard to work with on the set, he left NYPD Blue four episodes into its second season. I asked you not to do that, Andy. They're screwing you. I know that. That's what they do. They get my badge, but they don't get me to beg. Don't let them do it. What do you want me to do? John, you could write it out. Andy, they will find something. It's IAB. They can't find their heads up their own ass. They will find something. Look how hard they're trying to nail me. They will find something. And I am not answering phones until they do. Did it affect the show? Not in the slightest. As we just said, this took place four episodes. You hear me? That's four episodes into the show's second season out of an eventual 12. Each one gaining more momentum than the next thanks to various cast additions, strong stories, and of course, cast members punching their partial nudity scorecards. Are you going to tell me what I want to know or am I going to have to show you my ass? Even though the line should have been drawn at Sipowitz's ass, but again, I digress. Point is, the show can be on as many greatest shows of all timeless that it wants to be, especially since the show's second season would turn out to be its most successful in terms of ratings and Emmy hardware, racking up the Best Drama Series award that year. Did it affect the career? Caruso thought he had enough oomph in him to become a leading man in the movies, including those ever-popular classics Kiss of Death and Jade, both of which netted Caruso back-to-back nominations for the Razzie Award for Worst New Movie Star. You're going to call your attorney and you're going to tell him that I have a witness that can identify you going in and coming out of Kyle Medford's Pacifica house. Sound familiar? You're going to tell your attorney that I have pictures of you fucking the governor of California, and then you're going to tell him that those pictures are going to ruin the governor's career. Man, you fucked up! Meanwhile, it seems hard to believe now, but for a long time, Caruso's decision to jump shit was the long-standing benchmark for those who made poor career decisions. So much so that back when they still existed, the TV blog called Television Without Pity published an A to Z book of the 752 things that they love to hate and hate to love about TV. And Caruso is listed in the C's under the book's go-to reference for career suicide. So much so that they even reference this classic line from the first episode of South Park. Mike, do your impersonation of David Caruso's career! And at the time, that was a pretty pointed backhand towards the ruins that his career became by that point. Fortunately for Caruso, and for baby Ike, a trampoline was placed at the bottom of the cliff. Caruso managed to bounce on it and land safely in South Florida. You don't fall three stories, get up and run away. You do? You've got something to hide. 
Caruso managed to save his career by grabbing onto a spinoff in the CSI franchise. And for ten seasons, hang on to it for dear life. Welcome to Divorce of the Future. I'll say anything they put on paper. Arguably, if Caruso never got CSI Miami, he would certainly rank a lot higher on this list. Thankfully, no matter what he does for the rest of his career, the steady stream of residual checks for playing Horatio Kane should be enough to keep him happy for years. And it's going to have to, actually, because as of this recording, Caruso has retired from acting altogether to focus on work in the art industry. Another case of more power to him. But in this case also realizing the errors of his ways. Circling back to Television Without Pity, the entry in their book concludes, quote, The stench of failure won't wash off him until another TV star makes an even worse career move, end quote. Okay. You asked for it. So far in this list, we've mentioned people who, for all intents and purposes, quit their jobs in the hopes of finding a much better one on the horizon. And while a number of them have bounced back, most of the people involved here could have used their collective experiences as a life lesson in realizing that maybe they had a good thing going the whole time, and that it was probably a little too late in realizing it. That being said, and boy, I've been saying this a lot this episode, there's really only one other person that we need to talk about. For the record, I feel the same way about Two and a Half Men that I feel about The Brady Bunch. I never hated it, but I never really found it to be appointment TV viewing. And considering that the show ran a dumbfoundingly long 12-year run on CBS with continuous runs in syndication to this day, it's not like I've been able to avoid it on purpose. If there's absolutely nothing else to watch on TV at that hour, I'll swallow my pride. The few episodes of the show that I have seen, it's okay. I wouldn't go ranking it among shows like I Love Lucy, but... It had to have done something right for it to have run that long. And a lot of credit for its longevity can be attributed to this guy. I make a lot of money for doing very little work. I sleep with beautiful women who don't ask about my feelings. I drive a Jag, I live at the beach, and sometimes in the middle of the day, for no reason at all, I like to make myself a big pitcher of margaritas and take a nap out on the sun deck. Could anybody out there have pictured anybody else sitting at number one on this list. The story of how Charlie Sheen pretty much transformed himself into a barbed-wired, tiger-blooded warlock with a Donna's DNA traveling through an F5 hurricane to self-declare that he was winning when he got himself fired from Two and a Half Men is the stuff of showbiz legend. But now in the over 10 years since the incident took place, maybe it's time for a little perspective. Because Satan knows Sheen himself has had enough of it to last about several dozen lifetimes. For starters, why did this happen in the first place? Well, I'm not sure if this was ever known to anybody at the time, but Charlie Sheen... Well, apparently he's had an on-again, off-again relationship with a little something called drugs. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I am on a drug. It's called Charlie Sheen. Um, it, uh, it's not available because if you try it once, you will die. Your face will melt off and your children will weep over your exploded body. Um, too much. Charlie Sheen did drugs. Lots of drugs. A lot of bunch of drugs. 
So many, in fact, that even the notion of him still being alive to this day may be the most miraculous thing that we've seen down here. And we've got an entire wing of the Lust Circle reserved for the moment when he arrives. Coming in the wake of drug and alcohol-fueled scandals with porn stars and allegations of violence have left many wondering if Sheen has finally lost it. Not to put too fine a point on it, but Sheen kept bouncing in and out of rehab facilities throughout his career. And given the benefit of the doubt, sometimes the stints have resulted in lengthy periods of sobriety and actual moments of critical accolades. So let's be absolutely clear here before we go any further, especially if by some fluke of nature he ever listens to this show. By no means whatsoever are we bad-mouthing the guy. We're just telling you the details of what happened, and those details are on the public record for having happened. We want to be clear about that before we continue. Charlie Sheen is not a bad actor, and hell, to an extent, even after all he's been through, I don't even think he's a bad person. Hell, on some days, our boss is jealous of him. He's just made bad decisions in his life. The fuse of which was lit around 2010, when Sheen once again checked into rehab. But because he was the star of, and I can't stress this enough, the number one comedy on television. This meant that the show couldn't go on, but eventually it did once Sheen got out. This also resulted in a bit of soul-searching for him, leading up to him contemplating leaving the show altogether at the end of the show's seventh season. CBS, realizing that their number one hit comedy may be on the ropes if he does, ultimately decided to give Sheen a raise. An estimated $2 million per episode over the next two years. Now, to play the advocate of somebody working down here, ask yourself, if you were an employer who hired someone who, although highly professional at what they do, has a very well-documented history of getting himself into trouble, especially if the trouble involves addictive substances that, knowing Hollywood, would probably cost an arm and a leg to obtain in the first place, would you give that person a raise? The sane answer would be no. Partly because no matter how professional that person is on their best day, the last thing you would ever do is tempt the gods by possibly enabling one's habit thanks to a substantial pay hike. I mean, that, that, that's just human resources 101. No good could possibly come from this. And for the sake of karma existing in the universe, it did not. It was January of 2011 when Sheen checked into a rehab again, his third stint there in a year's time. But it was after that third trip where the Sheen hit the fan. What is going on inside the head of Charlie Sheen? And I will, I will destroy you in the air and I will, I will, I will deploy my ordinance uh, to the ground. I don't care if he's my dad or the guy down the street or someone that like fell out of the sky. No interest in that. I don't care if he's my dad. Back off with your judgment. There's nothing inside of deplorable that a certain Heim Levine, yeah, that's Chuck's real name, mistook this rock star for his own selfish exit strategy, bro. I read it off a vanity card and said it as a joke. I don't know, I just, I didn't make a big deal about it. Stay away from the crack, which I think is pretty good advice, unless you can manage it socially, Dan. Was that a joke or were you, what are you serious? Think? You're a smart lady. You tell me. Yeah, it was a joke. I have a different constitution, I have a different brain, I have a different heart, I have a different, you know, I get tiger blood, man. I expose people to magic, I expose them to something they're never otherwise going to see in their boring, normal lives. Yeah, no, it's radical, it's radical, and the people are doing exactly what they should be doing, which is watching me and listening to you, because we have all the answers, we have all the goal, we have all the solution, Bob, and keep in mind, like, anytime I roll something out, my plan is the best one in the room, and people are starting to wake up and realize that, that their plan is shit, my plan is gold. Walk into my plan, and you're going to win, win, win. Winner.com. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. I don't think so. Winner, winner, sheen dinner. I think we should do my book, incidentally, the title, best title of all time, Apocalypse Me, The Jaws of Life. They know, don't they know that we are in, we are in the cyber pocket of greatness? I'm an F-18, bro, and I will, I will destroy you in the air, and I will, I will, I will deploy my ordinance uh, to the ground. 
That is my plan. Thank you, Shmini. <laughs> Winning. To say that Sheen got fired from the show after all of that would be an insult to the word understatement. Not only did he burn bridges with Chuck Lorre and his fellow co-stars, but he also covered the bridge with napalm that Martin Sheen probably stashed away when filming Apocalypse Now. I love you in Wall Street! All the stuff that Sheen said and did to get himself fired would be enough. But it's the aftermath of the insanity that cements Sheen's position at the top of the list. Did it affect the show? In the short term, especially the period during and after the incident, the show probably generated the biggest ratings it would ever see in the remainder of its run. Even after Ashton Kutcher joined to replace Sheen, there were people tuning in strictly out of curiosity. So much so that the show wound up running an additional four seasons before ultimately wrapping up in 2015. But not without making one final joke at the expense of both its exiled star and the fans who invested 12 years of their viewing habits to the show. Someone's having a piano delivered by helicopter. Mm, that's the kind of extravagant thing Charlie would do. Oh, uh, he had a, a baby grand just like that. It's coming right this way. You don't think that it's possible that the cops got the wrong guy, do you? Nah. <laughs> An ending which, much to my shock, wound up pulling in quite the backlash against Chuck Lorre, even though he, too, would be hit with a piano seconds later. Winning. And yet, the reaction that people gave this finale seems to be the most perplexing part of this whole thing. Which, since that clip is on YouTube, I'll let you see for yourself how fervent the reaction was via their comments section. But since we're not here to talk about that Charlie's mental state... Did it affect the career? And how? Granted, he's still alive. He still managed to find work after it happened. He's still working today. He's still shaking off trouble. People can't get enough of him. The incident only catapulted his popularity, albeit temporarily, and most likely, he still doesn't give a shit about what other people think of all the exploits as they continue to watch his life with a sense of awe and fascination, present company included. But still, this is a guy who went from a seven-figure weekly income to whatever the hero it is that he's doing right now, that's still one hero of a fall to make. No matter how successful the guy still is, and no matter how much of a folk hero he's become, and again, we legitimately wish him continued success in whatever it is he's up to right now, but by all accounts and purposes, this would have been a bad career move only if you were a normal human being. Charlie Sheen is not a normal human being, but the only conceivable reason why this moment is on our list, let alone at number one, is that the entire incident has been seared into our minds with such a white-hot intensity that you almost have to admire the guy's tenacity and wonder if they can give out Lifetime Achievement Awards simply for the achievement of being alive. Uh, winning. Winning. Winner, winner. Ultimate winner. Uh, winning. Winning. Either that, or maybe the guy is immortal after all. Just please don't shoot the messenger. Please. Once again, if there's anybody out there we forgot who made, well, not as memorable a career move than Charlie Sheen's, but still significant enough that we can fill up a second list, let us have it with both barrels of tiger blood out of a torpedo tube on our socials at Telehell Podcast, or contact us on our complaint line at telehellpodcast at gmail.com. And speaking of somebody who made a mistake in their career... Next time on Telehell, if you're wondering why we did a top seven list instead of our usual top eight, consider the actor in this next show an honorable mention. I mean, I'm sorry, he did it, but honey, he's only a pet. No, a pet is a dog or a cat. What we have in the backyard is a monkey. <laughs> Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Our thanks, in no particular order, to the following followers on our Twitter and Facebook for suggesting some of the songs that we've used as in-between bumpers today. People like Mr. Cheeseball, Rick Kalaki Jr., Chris Michaud, Mike Eichert, Eric Longoria, 
Devin Thayer Lund, and Alexander Falarski. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds, Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. By the way, shows like these aren't cheap. Do what you can and can what you do at patreon.com slash telehellpodcast.